Boise, Idaho, and Idaho Education News. This is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. I'm going to co-opt a phrase that you heard in the field and, and edit it slightly. You know, sometimes you plan the week and sometimes the week plans you. Right. This, right was, yeah. this was kind of one of those weeks where the week planned us and a lot of things broke and a lot of things happened. But you, the listener, are the beneficiary because we've got a lot to get to. And you, the reader, are also a beneficiary because there's a whole lot to get to at idahoidnews.org. A lot to catch up on. We're going to hit some of the highlights this week and give you some context on some of the headlines from the week. Yeah, Kevin, it, it, it's like you said on Thursday, if you're not satisfied with our coverage this week, we'll give you double your money yes. back. And I think Thursday really did get out of control for us. But let's start with one of the top stories from Thursday a familiar face is going to be a new member of the State Board of Education. This is an appointment, one of two, that we've been waiting for, I want to say, two months now. Uh, but who did Governor Little appoint to the State Board of Education, and how do we know this person? Well, we know her very well from our coverage of the legislature, and probably most anybody who follows state government and follows the legislature knows, knows Sean Keogh. Sean Keogh spent 11 terms in the legislature, 22 years, uh, before she decided to retire from the Senate in 2018. I think she was the senior member of when the Senate. When she retired, she was the senior member of the, uh, of the state Senate. She is the longest-serving female legislator in state history, or female senator in state history. A say. powerful, well-respected legislator. And it, it was more than just sticking around for a long time. Uh, Keogh... When she left the legislature, left as the co-chair of the Joint Finance Appropriations Committee, the Budget Writing Committee, extremely influential legislator. But she never really vanished completely from the public view. No, not uh, at all. She's been involved with, um, you know, she's been a lobbyist at the State House, and most recently, she uh, has taken on a prominent role in uh, Governor Little's uh, K-12 task force. You've seen her a lot this summer. She's uh, been uh, chairing one of the subcommittees. So... Maybe not too much of a surprise that uh, Governor Little, uh, former lieutenant governor, former state senator, uh, would uh, would appoint uh, somebody that he knows very well from his days in the Senate and knows very well, you know, from the process these past couple of months on the education task force. I mean, it it was one of those appointments when it came down. It was like, well, who else would you have expected uh, Governor Little to appoint? This felt like a very kind of a no-brainer appointment, but also a fairly shrewd appointment when you consider uh, Keogh's experience and her background and her, her, her temperament as a, uh, as a politician. I thought this was a, a fascinating appointment. Like you said, who else uh, would you appoint once we saw the news come down? Uh, it, it fills a, a vacancy in, in, in North Idaho, and so geographically they'll continue to have representation. Right, right. Governors are not obligated to have geographic balance on the state board, they, but they try to do that. Uh, traditionally, and Keogh is replacing a North Idaho uh, State Board member, uh, Don Soltman. But like, you talked about how this was a shrewd appointment, we feel, on the part of Governor Little. Let's talk a little bit about why that might be and what may be lying ahead for the State Board of Education, because we talked a little bit yesterday when we were just reacting to the news in the office uh, about how this could be a fun appointment to watch, and it could be fun to watch the State Board going forward, particularly during the 2020 legislative session and beyond. When you think of some of the big issues that are coming down the pike uh, from this task force and coming into the 2020 legislative session, 
Uh, don't mind that. Uh, my Giants are still not a very good football team. Um, we didn't need a push notification to tell us that, Kevin. No, we didn't need that. And uh, Okay, I've muted the phone. This isn't going to happen again. Where, where were we? We were talking about Sean Keogh. Yeah. And we were talking about the budget. We were talking about the 2020 legislative session. Uh, when you think about what's going to come out of this task force and what we're likely to see in terms of recommendations, pretty big price tags attached. If we're talking about all-day kindergarten, uh, rolling that out or making that optional, that could cost tens of millions of dollars. When we're talking about uh, expansion of the career ladder uh, to uh, help uh, veteran teachers, that is uh, something that even if you do it over several years, it's still going to cost you tens of millions of dollars. Uh, you know, Sean Keogh brings a wealth of experience in the legislative process, particularly the legislative budgeting process. You know, when I when I wrote up the story, I had to call up a profile that I did of uh, of Keogh when she was first taking over as chair of uh, of JFAC. This was back in 2016. Was her first session as as chair. She had been on that committee for almost 15 years before that. I mean, she spent 18 of her 22 years, I want to say, in the Senate as a member of JFAC. Um, she's forgotten more about the state <laughs> budget than most of us are ever going to know. She is, uh, she is that knowledgeable. She's that experienced. And, you know, and, and, you know, I talked about the temperament. She is, you know, she's a pretty even-handed arbiter on issues. She is, by no means is she an ideologue. She's a, a pretty analytical, you know, bottom line driven sort of a thinker in terms of policy issues. She's she's not, you know, she's not a bomb thrower. She's not, you know, she does not have a whole lot of appetite for hot button issues. But she comes from a portion of the state where you know where you have a lot of ideological Republicans in in power. So I think she is, you know, she managed as a, an elected official to sort of. You know, walk that line. You know, representing a very conservative legislative district, but doing it in a very um, pragmatic way. Well, I think she was able to work well with a lot of different people from a lot of different backgrounds. Obviously, extremely effective. Had a lot of clout. You don't get to that position as co-chair of JFAC. But it's something that any legislator would want. That kind of position and that kind of influence, they don't just hand those out. Those are earned. Yeah, you, you earn that by proving that you know your stuff and that you're going to put in the time. I mean, that is a very time-consuming committee, a very labor-intensive process. I mean, she was, you know, she was a hard-working legislator, and I would expect her to be nothing less than a hard-working member of the state board. I think it's going to be fun to watch the state board going forward because I already had talked this summer to State Board of Education President Debbie Critchfield, the new president of the State Board, about how she wants the State Board to be a little bit more deliberate about their policy setting, a little bit more strategic, work a little bit closer with the legislature, have maybe a little bit more of a visible presence during the legislative session, not just deferring to their staff, uh, which has proved very capable in the past, but having the State Board members themselves there at the committee level during the legislative session. And I really think it's interesting former Senator Keogh's position on the task force. Mm -hmm. And I keep coming back to this article that I did at the end of the 2019 legislative session where some members of the House Education Committee were very skeptical about what was going to happen with this task force and were very concerned about a task force coming in and giving them direction. 
Uh, but the House Education Committee, several members really last year kind of asserted themselves that they want to be the player. They want to be in charge of setting policy at the state level and everything's going to have to go through them. And we saw kind of a wild year in 2019, particularly out of the House Education Committee. They killed a lot of bills. They killed their, their chairman's uh, bills at one point. They couldn't get a funding formula proposal through. Um, it was a tough committee. That's uh, a large committee uh, that has a lot of independent, strong-willed people on there. And so I think that this is an interesting choice by the governor to put someone who has a lot of legislative clout and experience on the state board, but who also intersected with the task force work this summer, mm -hmm. and who yeah. may really be able to, whether it's something visible that we see out in the open or something behind the scenes, may really be able to work with the legislature on implementing some of these task force recommendations. Because as you talked about, they're going to be expensive. Some of them might be divisive. And we know that the revenue situation is going to be extremely cautious this year and going forward. Um, so I and, think and that's it, a really interesting appointment for, the, for some of those reasons. And, and I think along those lines, uh, it was very interesting to see the reactions to this appointment on Thursday. I mean, you get the press release and you get the quote from Debbie Critchfield and, and from Governor Little praising this appointment. Well, that's what you'd expect. You, you get that in a press release. But the kind of unsolicited response really from all across the ideological oh, yeah. spectrum from folks who spend time at the state house, whether they're elected officials or uh, they work as lobbyists or as staff, almost universal praise. You know, I, I think, you know, Sean Keogh is somebody who has a lot of credibility, a lot of connections, um, uh, and is held in pretty high regard in that building. So. If you're heading into a 2020 legislative session where it could get uh, get complicated uh, trying to shepherd recommendations from this task force, you know, Sean Keogh may be about as good an ambassador as uh, Governor Little could expect on, on the state board. Yeah, I think it's a fascinating appointment. Like you said at the beginning, who else would we have expected, really, if you think about it? I think it's fascinating. Uh, I, 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 like you said, the praise... Uh, with the selection this week was near unanimous. A lot of respect and a lot of friends across the aisle and across the many shades of Republicanism in the state of Idaho. A, a lot of support and a lot of friends there. And so, one more one more thing. Bold prediction: um, State board appointments are subject to confirmation from the Senate. I think Sean Keogh probably squeaks by and gets confirmed by the Senate. You think just barely? Ooh. Yeah, I, I, you know, we'll count noses and, and, and quantify that more heading into it. But yeah. No, in all seriousness, I mean, this is somebody who uh, has a very high profile and a, a lot of credibility in, in the state house. And just to be clear, we were being a little bit sarcastic of, uh, you know, <laughs> no reason to think that that appointment would be in any trouble or faced any resistance uh, from the Senate where she was well liked. But uh, having a little bit of fun there. But yes, all appointments like this are subject to Senate confirmation. But I think a lot of legislators will embrace working with her. I, I think it'll be interesting to watch that dynamic and to watch the implementation of these task force, what will become recommendations very shortly. Uh, so stay tuned. And, and spinning this forward, uh, there is still one more appointment to come on the State Board of yep. Education. Um, the governor's office said that uh, Little is still reviewing applications for the second appointment that is uh, to fill the spot currently being held, at least on an acting basis, Richard Westerberg from Preston. Uh, is stepping down or will step down when a new appointment is made. 
we'll see if that's uh, somebody from Eastern Idaho. Again, 38 applicants uh, for those two spots. So the governor has got a lot of folks to choose from. We'll uh, keep an eye on it and see when we get word on the second appointment. All right, sounds good. Uh, shifting gears here, we've got a lot to cover. I want to get to one of our other top stories this week. We finally know, and we can finally report, uh, that the 1,400 Idaho teachers who applied for the Master Educator Premiums do not have much longer to wait to find yeah, out if they get Yeah, that's the... what that ESPN push alert was actually yeah, yeah, about. They're, think... they're picking up on the Master Educator Premium story. <laughs> who knew? Yeah. But we've been following you very closely. Clark, you had the latest on this on Thursday. It comes down to Monday night. Monday night, yeah. Uh, the state is going to send out notification. We know already that 1,400, just over 1,400 Idaho teachers have applied for this. This is a new salary incentive, Kevin, as you know, created by the legislature to provide a financial reward to recognize really Idaho's highest performing teachers. That's where the name master teacher comes in, right? And so what this is, we're talking about a $4,000 annual award, which the state calls a mm-hmm. premium, renewable for three years, uh, total value of $12,000 there, but really an effort to reward and incentivize and thank Idaho's master teachers. They're finally going to get the word Monday night by midnight. Uh, so just before, uh, right at the end of September, they're going to be finding out. Uh, and I'm told that they'll be emailed whether or not they receive the premium. So right. if you've applied, watch your email. You may have to stay up late Monday night or get up Tuesday before work if you want to find out. Um, but the news should be coming shortly. And then we'll get the numbers. We don't know the numbers yet of how many educators will receive that. We think we're going to find that out ideally on October 1st, the very next day. But a big story, but this has been something that the task force has looked at this summer, a little bit of a rocky rollout, about a month delay from when the state originally hoped to notify teachers to when they will actually be notified. But there have been some questions about this program, about whether it's actually rewarding the true master teachers. And there was some news I broke this summer the 2019 Teacher of the Year, Mark Beatty, I want to say he's from the American Falls yes, School right. District. I think he's also the mayor of American Falls. Uh, but he did not apply. Uh, and you would think that's the exact kind of person they want to recognize and incentivize. He did not apply. And we've heard that educators are saying it took up to 80, 100, 120 hours to fill this out. And they had to create these portfolios with evidence documenting mastery. It's kind of a high bar for some folks. And it looks like thousands of teachers who could have met the minimum eligibility requirements, including eight years of classroom experience, did not apply. The state thought 8,000 to 10,000 educators would likely be eligible. We saw 1,405 people apply. And, And that's raised some questions across the state about who's applying, is this moving the needle, is this recognizing our two true highest performers? And then, you know, I gotta go back to Bill Gilbert, the Boise businessman, who heads up Governor Little's task force, uh, a business executive, not an educator, but he said in the business world, we would never handle a program like this where we would ask our top performers to fill out these lengthy applications uh, for a salary incentive for, right. for a reward like that. So I'll be interested in, in the raw numbers that we get. How many of the 1,400 applicants get a share of the money? For sure. I'll be interested too, hopefully at some point, maybe not Tuesday, but maybe down the road, we'll get kind of a breakdown. I'll be curious to see where that money is going. I mean, we've reported before about how a lot of these applicants are from 
Boise and West Ada. The state's two largest districts right in the uh, Boise and Meridian area. Even out of proportion to how large those districts are relative to the overall yep. you know, state enrollment. So I'll be really curious to see, do the awards skew in one direction or another? Uh, was the application success rate uh, for some districts and charters higher or lower? lower? I mean, there's a, there's a lot to suss out. And maybe the most important thing to to see starting on Tuesday, I guess, when we get you know reaction from the field. What do applicants and educators and administrators say once the news comes out? Do they feel like in the end the process uh, treated them fairly? Uh, do they feel like there are serious flaws in this process, serious things that need to be changed in this process? I mean, we've heard the criticism of how long it's taken to do the application process. Right. And, and I think that that message has you know, certainly been heard by folks on the task force and by folks in state government. I don't know how that plays itself out from here, but we'll get a sense when the money is distributed, how people feel about the outcome and how those outcomes might affect the way this thing works down the road. So we'll have as much information as we can put together on Tuesday. Um, we'll get you a sense of what the numbers look like and what the trends look like and what the reactions are. Yep, yep. And so we know everybody's, uh, all, all 1,400 of you have been waiting patiently. The State Board of Education, by the way, knows that. They talked about how there were some bumps in the road. It wasn't a smooth rollout. They think they've learned some things this year that they're going to apply going forward. And, and so they said we asked for patience, and, and everybody's been really patient. So we appreciate that. But it'll be interesting. Does the legislature take a look at this program in 2020? Do they make tweaks or changes? Does the task force weigh in? It still might uh, because they're talking about teacher pay for veteran teachers. That's one of the areas that they're specifically looking at. So I don't know. It, it, we will have some numbers to dig into. Uh, we'll try to talk with some educators uh, who have applied and, and get their sense of, of how the program's working and whether it's moving the needle. And then you know, as it goes forward, whether it's the task force this fall or the legislature in the new year, you know, we'll watch. If, if Do they retain this program? Are there changes to it? I do get a sense that for the folks who get the award on Monday night, that they will get the award and the money will come through not only this year, uh, but I think there's going to be a commitment for future years. But whether they open up a new application pool next year and continue the program beyond this first, I guess you could call it a cohort of winners. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Uh, we'll, we'll try to follow that as best we can. But as of right now, it is written in state law. And so as of where things stand right now, the program will continue. The legislature has appropriated money for it. There's more than enough state funding to pay for the awards this year. And so there won't be any kind of problem for the folks that get notified Monday night for those folks getting their $4,000. And that will be distributed we've heard before through local school district and charter, local payroll systems. Right. If you need to get caught up on that, head over to idahoednews.org, check out my story from Thursday. We will have another story, I'm assuming some point Tuesday or Wednesday, uh, looking at some of the numbers and some of the initial reaction of this program and we'll continue to follow it all fall and all winter. Yes, yes, and we'll, we'll follow into the session to see how, yep. how this process affects the discussion about uh, continuing master educator premiums or teacher pay raises, uh, 
Uh, a, a lot there. It's it like you and I always talk about when we look to the 2020 session, we're thinking short and sweet and not a lot to talk about, so it should be real easy to track this oh, one. Yeah, yeah. we'll have nothing else to do. <laughs> yeah, I'm, sure. I'm kidding. We think 2020 session might be a little bit crazy. There'll be a lot going on. Uh, but anyways, moving on, another topic. Uh, our reporter Sammy Edge and you as well, Kevin, have tracked some of the SAT results that have come in. And Sammy had a really good breakdown earlier this week about the newest numbers uh, from SAT performance, but a little concerned there, but Kevin, kind of walk through uh, the report and some of the things that you and Sammy have been looking at. Well, the numbers dropped, as Sammy reported on, on Tuesday. The average score for Idaho students in the class of 2019 is down a few points, about, I think it's eight points on the 1,600-point scale. Um, so another drop-off, and it's the second consecutive year that we've seen a drop-off uh, in, in SAT scores. And what I also found interesting in, in Sammy's story is uh, she looked at something uh, we've tried to look at in the past. How do Idaho's scores compare with other states where you have high participation in the SAT? Sure. You know, where it's either a, a requirement or uh, it's, uh, it's a free SAT program, kind of like we have here in Idaho. When you compare Idaho's average SAT scores with the SAT scores in these other high participation states, Idaho ranks near the bottom there as well, uh, ahead of only Delaware. And I, I believe the District of Columbia also has some high participation rates. But the 10 states with those high participation rates, Idaho came in ninth. So those are some, some sobering figures. Why is the SAT important? Well, you know, some colleges, uh, not all colleges, uh, use it as a yardstick for admissions. Uh, that, that's, you know, changing over time, and some colleges are, are downplaying the, you know, the SAT or the, any college placement but exam. But the state has, has elevated the SAT as its college entrance exam of choice to the point that the taxpayers are paying a million dollars a year so that every... Idaho student can take the SAT during the school day if they want to. Right, and because every student or nearly every student in Idaho takes the SAT at some point, whether they're college bound or not, it does give you a pretty broad snapshot of where students stand at the time that they take the test. So that's kind of why I, I look at it and why we use the SAT as a yardstick. Uh, because it is so broadly right. administered in, in Idaho. But that's also why I'm really careful, and, and Sammy was really careful in the story this week, to not overgeneralize this. If you compare Idaho's uh, SAT scores with um, states where the participation rate is low, Idaho is going to come out lower on those metrics because it's really not even a fair comparison. It's not apples to apples. If you're comparing almost every student in Idaho and how they perform on the SAT with a state where maybe a small sliver of the student population takes the SAT, and that small sliver it's is most likely going to be the college-bound kids yeah. who are highly motivated and have studied for the SAT and are really locked in on, on the test. Well, of course, Taking those states are going to have... Time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, of course, those, those states are going to have higher average SAT scores. That just stands to reason. So I don't draw a whole lot uh, of parallel there. But when I when we look at the comparisons with other states where you have that broad administration of the test. There I do think that that comparison has some, some validity. So we've got graphics that look at uh, how Idaho stacks up with those other states, what the Idaho numbers mean, and how those numbers break down in terms of college and career readiness and students meeting the benchmarks 
uh, for college and career readiness on both the math portion of the SAT and the verbal section of the SAT. A lot of numbers there, important numbers. Uh, check it out at idahoednews.org. Yeah, kudos to Sammy uh, for grabbing that one. It's really been great having Sammy around the office since the spring. She has a really cool project that she's partnering up on that we want to tell you about in a few weeks. We'll see if we can get her on the podcast to talk about a huge project, which I think a ton of people are going to be really excited about, something that no one is really looking at that's hugely important in education. And so you guys will see a lot more of her work and hear a lot more uh, from her coming up. And so we'll we'll circle back there, not quite ready uh, to unveil everything, but we will invite her on the show uh, this fall to talk about what she's up to, what she's working on, and where you can find her work going forward. No, it sounds good, but, you know, we've still got stuff to get through from this week. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, let's talk about a little scrutiny for former Boise State University President Bob Kustra and his radio show. But you took a look at his contract and found out a little bit more than what meets the eye. But what are we talking about here with former President Kustra's radio show and the contracts? And what was the Freedom Foundation concerned about? Well, this is one of those uh, stories that kind of, uh, you know, kind of emerged on social media during the course of the week. Uh, Bob Kustra, uh, retired president of Boise State University, has hosted a radio show on Boise State Public Radio. The Reader's is, Corner, right? The, the Reader's Corner, and he started it pretty soon after he became president. So this is way back in 2003. And Kustra has had this show going you know, for 16 years. He interviews authors uh, from all, you know, on all sorts of topics. I mean, it's a very wide-ranging uh, you know, show uh, talking to authors about their work, and, and the project, the, the show has continued even as Kustra has retired as president of Boise State University, and that's where the new contract comes into play. So as the Idaho Freedom Foundation tweeted out on Wednesday, Kustra's contract uh, is a part-time agreement with uh, Boise State Public Radio to host the show at a salary of $77,000, which translates out to, I want to say, about $76 per hour on a 20-hour-per-week schedule. So I looked at that, that salary, and I compared it with some of the other uh, top staff at Boise State Public Radio. It is more per hour than anybody that I can find at, at Public Radio, including the, uh, the manager of the station. But, it, but, 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 but there's more to the story. There is a lot than, more to the story. He's doing more than hosting a, a radio show. He talked about the role as president emeritus and what all that entails, but also some clarity that this $77,000 is not coming out of uh, taxpayers' pocketbooks, right? Right. So there's more to the story than the tweet and, and the criticism of the $77,000 contract. Um, and, and I tried to break that down into two areas, and you, and you hit on them both. While Custer's contract is as a senior radio host. His role as a president emeritus goes beyond that. And you know, I was swapping emails with, with Kustra on Thursday about this, and he said, look, I, I, I'm writing in academic journals about the role of athletics in a university president's uh, life. I am I'm charged to be a guest lecturer at Boise State. I am working on a class uh, in the spring for Boise State's Osher Institute yeah. of Lifelong Learning. Uh, as he put it, look, I, I've got a lot of things going on. Reader's Corner is not the only thing keeping me busy in retirement. Um, and, and that was a point that was also made by uh, university spokesman Greg Hahn and by uh, Tom Michael, the general manager at Boise State Public Radio, that you know, 
thinking of Kostura and his role right now is simply a radio host role, even though that the contract is as a radio host, does not take in everything that Kostura is doing in retirement. And it also does not explain where the money comes from. I looked at the contract. It's a one-pager. It, it does not go into a whole lot of detail. It does not explain where the money comes from. Uh, Greg Hahn at Boise State uh, says that the money does not come from taxpayer funding. It comes from a variety of other sources that are used to pay for administrative costs and used to pay for uh, functions in the president's office. Foundation money goes into part of that. Also, uh, fees that are collected by um, the Morrison extra, Center, the Morrison the Center, shop. Extra Mile Arena, parking and transportation, yep. revenue generating uh, operations on campus put some of that revenue towards uh, central operations of the university. So no taxpayer dollars involved in the $77,000 contract. That has not exactly satisfied the Freedom Foundation. They're still critical of the contract. They're still saying, look, this is still $77,000. It could be better spent doing something else like uh, supporting student scholarships. So, you know, putting this contra contract controversy into some sort of perspective we have heard this before, and we've heard this quite a bit in the past few months. They're really scrutinizing they really... so much about Boise State University and spending in higher education in general, but, but Boise State in particular, particularly oh, like we talked about with the new President Marlene Trump, uh, Custer's successor coming on board, that letter from this summer, and you had an update that you followed out of that story. Right, a lot, a lot of, so a lot of parallels to the, the Trump uh, diversity program controversy and this one. One of the, the first thing I thought of when I saw the tweet uh, about the Custer contract is, okay, where's the money coming from? Because right. as the diversity and inclusion program story unfolded during the summer, Betsy Russell, our friend and colleague over at Idaho Press, did uh, some number crunching on these diversity programs and found out, lo and behold, taxpayer money is not supporting those programs either. Uh, it's uh, grants, it's corporate contributions. So I thought it was really important before I wrote anything about the Custer contract is I want to nail down where the money's coming from because it's not all created equal um, and found out uh, that this is not uh, general fund money. But in the, in the bigger con context, uh, we're at a point where there's going to be a lot of political scrutiny uh, focused on higher education. That came up earlier this week uh, with uh, Tammy Nichols, a first-term legislator, um, did an interview with Breitbart News criticizing President Trump and the, you know, you know, what she considers to be political correctness run amok on the campus and hinting at defunding Boise State. Now, whether that's going to happen or not is, is certainly up for debate. Uh, Nichols is a first-term legislator. She doesn't sit on the budget committee. Or the education or the edu committee. education committee. She is not exactly well-situated to make good on a threat to defund Boise State. Um, Mike Moyle, the House Majority Leader, he talked to Betsy Russell uh, for that story earlier this week and said, you know, I just don't see defunding happening. And he's the Majority Leader. And he's been critical of some of these programs at Boise State himself. I so think he for, signed that letter. He was one of the 28 legislators who signed that letter. So he's he's been no fan of these diversity programs, but he's looking at the political reality of it and saying, you know, defunding, yeah, it might sound good in an interview, but it may not actually happen. But it gives you a sense of the scrutiny and the, the, the hot-button nature of higher education politics in Idaho right now. And 
Yeah. Just so happens that was something I was spending part of this week uh, learning a little bit more about. We'll continue to follow it. I definitely get the sense that this debate and scrutiny will intensify it's not going before away. it dies down. When we're talking we about why it's going to be a busy 2020 legislative session, we'll put that on the list of we, things that will keep us busy in 2020. Yeah, we. this is going to flare up before it calms down. We have not heard the last of this. Uh, so we'll continue to watch a bit. Interesting stuff. Thanks for grabbing that. This was such a crazy week. There's stuff that normally could have led our podcast that we're not even really going to be able to spend a lot of time on. But I wanted to let you know about several interesting stories that we did publish on the website IdahoEdNews.org that are worth your time this year. Uh, the this state. Of, the, what did I say? This year. This year. Oh, it felt Any, like sometime a year. this year. You know. I was. You a, get those in December. That's fine. You know, I was a young there. man on Monday morning, Kevin. <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> no. This week, several big stories that are worth your time, even though we won't be able to really get into them here. Uh, the state Department of Education and Governor Brad Little announced the 2020 Teacher of the Year uh, from the Lakeland School District. If you want to find out about what makes her. Uh, unique and stand out and what she will use her platform for. Uh, you can head over to the homepage, idahoednews.org, check that out and find out what she'll be up to. Also announced, uh, this is pretty cool, two Idaho schools received federal recognition as Blue Ribbon Schools. It's a really prestigious national honor if you want to find out which schools they were and why they were recognized. That is there as well. Um, there's a tort claim. Uh, that was the, filed. The, the Charter Commission controversy doesn't go away. Yeah, no. Uh, the administrator of uh, Heritage Academy in Jerome filed a $500,000 tort claim against the state. That is a precursor to a potential lawsuit. It all goes back to the content of that now infamous executive session uh, that the commission held in April. Like I say, a story that does not go away. Yep. Uh, I think our Devin Bodkin had a story taking a look at mastery-based education and a little bit closer look at Superintendent Ibarra's budget request, seeking to increase funding in that area. And taking a step back looking at how these mastery schools what, are Yeah, the effectiveness. The yeah. effectiveness of the programs, for sure. A bunch of good stuff uh, at the homepage this week, but like I said, we just didn't have enough time uh, to talk about it. Next week, real quick, uh, a couple of things on the radar. I'm heading up to Moscow to cover the big task force meeting on Tuesday, October 1st. Yes. And this is where the smaller subcommittees are actually going to issue their recommendations to the full task force. Um, and we're going to see things moving forward quickly at that point. The full task force will continue to meet maybe one or two more times. But we're going to get a closer look at those recommendations and how they are received on Tuesday. And if you want to get caught up on what's going to be on the task force's plate on Tuesday, Clark's had an extensive coverage from the subcommittees and a breakdown of what those subcommittees are recommending and what will be before the task force come Tuesday. So if you want to get caught up beforehand, go to idahoednews.org. All right. And while you're in Moscow tracking the task force, I'll pick up the Master Educator Premium story and we'll try to get a sense of what those numbers say and where things go from here. And who knows what else is going to happen, because if uh, next week is anything like this week, uh, we, could, uh, we could be busy. All right. I'm just seeing you're getting another push notification right now. The New York Giants still stink, but it's time to wrap up the podcast. So I want to thank everybody for but, listening this week. But my Oakland Athletics, their magic number for clinching a wild card berth is one. All they need to do is win one in Seattle, which would make it a little bit more sweet, almost as sweet as clinching at home. And they've got Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Friday, Saturday, with. and Sunday, or the Indians need to lose a game uh, sometime this weekend. So uh, so things are looking up there. 
the giants, we'll, we'll get to them when they, when they don't stink anymore. <laughs> All right, sounds good. Thanks so much for, for tuning in and, and listening. We have a lot of fun on the Extra Credit Podcast, breaking down this complicated intersection of education politics, education policy. We'll be back next week with a brand new edition of Extra Credit. I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Have a good week.